welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz. I am your host, Danny Katz. I am an author, journalist, and a quantum languaging coach and consultant. What that means is that I teach people how language programs consciousness, how language programs reality at large, and how to transform reality and evolve our consciousness with language. I've also been known to cultivate and share an opinion or two or 12 about culture and consciousness and how they are evolving, devolving, and being manipulated by the powers that were. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to fostering critical thinking while supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated, realized, amazing version of yourself. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. (laughs) And think. Given the radical uptick in censorship over the past few years, combined with the complete co-opting slash decimation of my own personal industry, journalism, I started Word Up to have a free speech-friendly platform in which to engage exploratory, solutions-based conversations with visionaries, mystics, original thinkers, and rebel badasses who are helping to make the world more wonderful. The first half of my interviews run between 30 to 90 minutes and are always posted here for free public listening. The second halves are reserved for paid supporters on my Patreon and my Locals platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you can access all of my second half conversations along with oodles of other bonus content and opportunities to drop in with me, to drop in with our High Vibe tribe, and lots of other awesome things. In addition to interviews, Word Up also features quantum languaging upgrades, planetary service announcements, and propaganda analysis, which I call Spot the Propaganda. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing your sacred attention with me and our high vibe tribe of change makers. Be sure to click that subscribe button so you can stay abreast of our every episode. Thank you for also clicking the like button, for sharing far and wide, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As well, if you are gleaning any value whatsoever from these shows, consider supporting me on Locals and or Patreon. And as you are wanting to learn more about my quantum languaging coaching and consulting services or nab copies of my books, find me on dannycats.com as well as on quantumlanguaging.com. Okay, I think that's it for our housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Hey, superstars. Welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. It is my great pleasure and honor to be joined today by Jason Brashears of RKX TV and the RKX YouTube channel. For those who aren't familiar with his work, there's no way I can possibly do it justice. He has over three decades of research informing his books, his videos, his PDFs. In in very short, truncated, reductive summary, Jason has honed in on the idea that we are living in an AI simulation, which he calls AIX, that resets itself 
Well, I guess one cycle is every 138 years. Um, but as Jason explains in our conversation, there are other cycles as well. I found it um, especially auspicious that Jason and I recorded this conversation on Monday, January, is it 15th? Yes, Monday the 15th, which is allegedly the day that we are moving out of the Kali Yuga for those who are tracking these larger cycles. So Jason's expertise is obviously in um, history, in chronology, and in ancient calendrical systems, but he is a wealth of fascinating information. So uh, buckle up and prepare to enjoy my conversation with Jason Brashears of RKX. Sounds like we're on a date. <laughs> Kinda. Okay, so Jason, I couldn't begin to do justice to your massive body of work and all of the worldviews and paradigms that you're smashing. But just to give my audience the briefest of contacts and overviews so they understand our conversation, as I understand it, you have done mountains of research and come to the conclusion that we're living in an AI simulation that resets itself every 138 years. Is that accurate? Uh, it's an oversimplification because this 138-year period isn't a total reset every time. It is definitely a perceivable and very well-documented cycle. But as far as its magnitude, it changes in accordance to wherever the human family is at the time. Okay, so we're going to walk super slowly through this. I'm very curious about you. Like, as I understand it, you, you learned all this information while you were in prison. I'm curious to know, before that happened, did you always have a capacity to process and make meaning and find patterns in such large swaths of information, or did that come on later in life for you? It was developmental, but this development was accelerated because even as a young child, my punishment for any time I got in trouble was to read books. And uh, my mother was puritanical Southern Baptist, and this is what she, I had to go to the library every week, and one book was basically the book that I was I wanted to check out for myself, and the other book was a punishment book because I was in trouble every single week, and uh, I had to read both books uh, before we went back to the library the next week. So public libraries in the in the mid to late seventies and the eighties were very very popular. Prior to the internet, public libraries were where a lot of people went, especially my family because it was you know puritanical Southern Baptist. So I was already well read before I went to prison at seventeen years old. Got it. Okay. And then I'm curious in, you know, I'm certainly no expert on your body of work. It's so massive, though I have been tracking you for, I would say, over a year. Um, I'm curious to know what books you were accessing in prison and how it was that there was this collection of this body of knowledge. Okay, that, that, that's a fair question. I mean, most people have a very rudimentary understanding of the prison culture. First of all, we don't have access to computers. We don't have any computers. In our cells, the only way we have, the only access to information we have are periodicals, newspapers, and books. And books are treasured in prison. 
And there are men who have done 20, 30, 40, and 50 year sentences, and they've been there the entire time. And some of these men have, they've been trading these books and they, I mean, I've read so many books from the 1800s that were just sitting on prison library shelves because prisons, once they fund a library, they're not going to spend a dime more on prisoners. So whatever old books are in that library are the old books you're stuck with. The old books in Texas are all in the damn prisons. So um, they closed the East Ham prison down, famous for Bonnie and Clyde. When they closed that, when they closed that down, I was on East Ham and I had access because it was one of my jobs to clean out these basement levels and to clean all these boxes out. And I come into contact with these old wooden crates that were packed full of all these old books. And I'd ask, what's all this? Some of them had mold on them. And I said, what's going on with all these books? And I was just told that, man, I don't know. It's a part, it's a part of the uh, Texas heritage, I guess, because they're not throwing any of the old furniture away either. It's all here from the days of Bonnie and Clyde. They closed that unit down and built a new East Ham prison in the 1970s right next to it. And that's the where I was housed. I was housed in the 1970s East Ham. But the old East Ham from the 1800s and 1920s where, where Clyde Barrow was um, is right there too. And I'm going through the books of that old library. I spent years going through that material. But you know, it wasn't just the books in the prisons. It's it's uh, when people started realizing what I was doing, I was writing all these people. I started getting benefactors. I was getting people sending me books from the uh, 17 and 1800s all over the world. And I was amassing all this material. And uh, I even had a publisher looking at me for a while. Then he dropped me and another publisher picked me up and he's already published seven of my books. But uh, four of them were published before I ever got out of prison. So this uh, books just came to me all my life. I've always had a surplus of books. And uh, my family's always made sure the whole time I was in prison, the whole, the whole 26 years I was in prison, my family was steadily sending me books. Anything, any titles and authors I could come up with, they'd hunt them down and send them to me. So it's a, it's a lot to process. But truth be told, uh, I could have been in a monastery and done the exact same thing. It didn't have anything to do with prison. It had everything to do with not being distracted. I didn't go out on dates. I didn't have hobbies. I didn't have a job that I had to go to. I had no children to take care of. I had no spouse, girlfriend, or wife that I had to expend time on. So my escape was intellectualism. And it was just deeply diving into these history books. And after years of doing that, it was inescapable. All the things that I began seeing uh, they took on new meanings, and I realized that the education that we are given is, is essentially wrong, and that it's entirely planned that way. I'm curious because I know that you were raised as a Southern Baptist with, you know, traditional worldview, and then somewhere along the way, as you're doing your research, it seems like your worldview was shattered, and I'm wondering, like, what that process was like for you and how much how resistant you were to that because it seems like a lot of the critiques around your work don't really have anything to do with your work but just people's own attachment to their worldview and the fear that comes up around letting that go i agree i agree 100 oh uh, i i originally set out in my earlier writings which are available now. I still have many. I have 27 books I've written, but about 11 of them are not published, but they're still available. I make them available on my website as PDF downloads. But my original books were all trying to support the Judeo-Christian paradigm. 
Uh, I was I was stringently trying to go through all the anthropological material, the archaeological, geological. I wanted to see every single thing that we have ever discovered, documented, translated, every text, every tablet, every archaeological monograph. I went through everything in the known English-speaking world that had been translated into English. And uh, uh, it, after about, by the time I was 40 years old, I realized that, that uh, this can't be true and that the old and that almost every story in the old testament was actually written over a thousand years after the events they depict and taken from other sources that were not jewish and uh, i found huge fragments and stories in the zendavesta and the zoroastrian holy scriptures i found uh, large portions of the old testament in the atrahasis and the anima elish uh, of the near east the older kudoragamor tablets Told the entire story of Genesis chapter 14. The whole story of Adam and Eve came straight out of the Babylonian Semitic text uh, concerning the Kainu and the Adamu. And these were descriptions of races and cultures before the flood. They had nothing to do with Adam and Cain. These were pronoun pronouns that were invented by, by Jewish scribes over a thousand years after the events they depict. So I started looking into the controversial scholars that the rest of academia shunned because, because it was in them that they were, they were providing answers that the rest of them refused to look at, such as Professor Waddell and, and Thor Heyerdahl. These men were shunned and by the rest of academia, but when I read their materials, they were telling the absolute truth. This is what I had found as well. This is exactly how the, the Old Testament was put together. The Babylonians took Judea into Basically, into custody, they deported them, and the Jewish scribes would come into contact with the great, vast Babylonian temple libraries. And they spent years in those libraries stealing their materials. And then turn around, within 250 years, they had an Old Testament, but none of that history was Jewish. It didn't belong to the Jews. It belonged to Bikumri. Bikumri is the ancient is the ancient Amuru name found in tablets all over the ancient world for a people the Bible calls the Israelites. In in the Old Testament, they were called the House of Omri, but it translates as Bikumri in Assyrian and in the in the Assyrian cuneiform. And they're found all over. Thousands of Israelite names have been found in the Assyrian uh, once they have been deported. So when the Assyrians weren't there to defend the integrity of their history and their records, when they had been deported, the, the southern Judahites came in and took their libraries, rewrote all that stuff, to borrow materials from the Babylonian libraries to write, to write the book of Genesis and, and several other texts. They stole from the, from the Nabataeans and took the book of Job, which was never a Jewish text. And they put all this together and then turned around and admitted they did it all in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. And then because there was so much blowback in the Jewish community about the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and how this how this Persian politician and Jewish priest got together to claim that they had the word of God when none of those people had ever heard of Moses or anything, they turned around and had to eliminate several writings, but those writings were never totally eliminated. They were removed from the canon, but anybody can read in the Apocrypha. First and second Esdras, where the entire affair is admitted that the Old Testament was invented. So it's all uh, this is this is the subject matter of my research that led me into into concluding that there's a lot more to the story to the human family than what I have been programmed to believe. Did that jostle you on like a fundamental existential level once you realized that everything we had been taught was a lie? Like, how was that on your psychological emotional state 
as you were unraveling your own worldview? Yeah, that's a good question too. That's Danny. That's a good question too because our beliefs modify our behavior. And as long as I was sticking to that paradigm, there were many situations in my past uh, that pretty much governed my behavior. I believe that I'm, uh, but I intrinsically a good guy. But I also know that we all have that darkness within us. I was a scrapper in prison, and it got me in a lot of trouble. I actually got more time while I was serving my prison sentence, and that's why I stayed in prison so long. But it's a this this worldview that I had maintained had me acting in a certain way in certain situations. Whereas if I wouldn't have held that such a stringent worldview, I may have done things very differently. And what I what I mean is is there are many situations that we're put into in life where telling the truth is exactly the opposite thing you should do. Telling the truth is not always good. Sometimes when you tell the truth to a loved one, they don't love you anymore. Sometimes when you tell the truth to a dear friend, you, you break that friendship. There are many instances that crop up in our lives where telling the truth is a discretionary act. And if you decide to do it in a certain situation, it's actually very detrimental. And I found, I found this over and over with my research. And I, I began keeping all these things to myself because when I began, when I, when I shared, I, I would see the change that would come over people. And it's the same change that I suffered. When I was 40 years old and I really realized that I had just researched my way completely out of Christianity. When that had happened, I went to a dark place. And I, 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 I tell the story on YouTube in one or two of my videos, but I went to a dark place where I was kind of unhinged and I was trapped, like I was trapped in the intersect between, between, uh, is everything bullshit or is there still some fundamentals? Is there still some truth? So I started processing information differently and studying reality, studying people around me. And I realized there are things that are true. And when I started thinking simple, I was like, okay, I had to start from ground zero. I have this a massive database of, of information because my, my, my expertise is ancient calendrical systems. And those opened my eyes to all kinds of reasons why the world is the way it is today. But in doing this, I, I began, you know what? The sky's always blue. Sometimes there's clouds there. Sometimes it's cloudy. If I take a pen and a needle and I pump myself, I'm going to draw a, a, some blood. It's going to be painful. If I throw something up, I'm going to be able to watch it come down for two reasons. One, I'm not strong enough to throw something beyond my eyesight. Therefore, there must be laws that are universal, that apply to everything. So I started looking at reality as causal. I'll say, okay, so with everything cause and effect, how do I fit in here? Because if all these rules are, are, are here and they're universal to all of us, and yet everybody here has an intrinsically different personality, then what is this really? Why does it feel like a stage? Why do I feel like everything around me is background programming and the only thing really real here are me and the, and the different personalities I come into contact with? So in processing information this way, I began, I began to reanalyze what I had learned from the, from the ancient past all the way to today, all my historical records. And I laid out all my research and I spent about three years going back through all my material and this, this is when I made all my greatest discoveries and I found all these patterns for which I've become famous for on, on archaics.com now. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's an important part of the waking up process 
that we don't necessarily talk about. And I think that when we're honest about the fact that like, it's hard to relinquish our worldviews, it's super destabilizing. I think it gives other people who might be resistance permission to step into it themselves. So I so appreciate you sharing that. That's good, it's all good. Regarding this planet, this construct, like whatever this is, was the earth itself always set up as as a construct, an enslavement construct, whatever it is, or was the earth itself co-opted by this AIX? I guess what I'm asking is like, did the earth start off as good and pure and real and something came in and took it over? Or is the earth a sham from the get-go? Well, I think that the fact that you're asking me this question, which is also a question sought by almost every every thinking individual in this world, is is evidence that the holosphere is very convincing. Now, what I mean is, is in the course of my research, I realized that you know there, there's this huge there's a huge huge rift in the community today. You understand between the fat, flat earthers and the and the globe earthers, huge rift. The rift is intentional, it's by design. The construct actually has the observable arithmetic in there to get you, anything you observe and measure is going to get you to assume that we're on a world. Even the Greeks came to that conclusion that we're on a world and the sun was far away and, and they, had, they, had, they had reached that understanding and it's only because of all the movement in the sky. I'm not telling you you're on a planet. I'm not telling you on a world. Uh, I am not a flat earther. I'm a simulationist, and as a simulationist, I believe that the perimeters of our world are modified by the collective unconsciousness. Whatever we agree in the collective to is what the perimeters of our world will reflect back as phenomena. So this is an, this is an experience. It is not a real reality. It is a perceived reality. When your sight, touch, smell, smell, hearing, taste, when your five senses which you experience by virtue of your central nervous system, they they fill their filters, and they're merely signals, and those signals are translated into experience, and those experience experiences come in five categories. Now, this is because in my in my my view, you are an immortal, and you agreed to a temporary situation where you would completely be alienated from the from the knowledge of actually who you are how ancient you are and the only way that you personally can grow and develop is by putting in putting being put into a situation where you would fear pain you would fear being maimed and hurt you would fear death things that are absolutely impossible in the real reality outside of this construct so the oversoul has has made an Finitude of constructs for us to have all these different experiences because immortals too need need to grow. So even Jesus's parable of the prodigal son it exemplifies this: the son that never rebelled and never left home was not the one that was favored by the father. The father favored the one who rebelled, did what his father did, the exact opposite of what the father asked him to, took his wealth away from the family. Spent it on whores, spent it on experiences, then was living, living homeless for a while before he realized that 
that okay dad's advice was pretty good and, and he humbled himself and he went back home and his father threw a party and the son that had never left was offended by that without understanding that the father wanted a son who was going who was going to learn not just merely obey so this is what these constructs are for. The oversoul is made in a, a bunch of these constructs, and they're for us to learn by experience. Because if we're going to spend eons and eons teaching lesser creations that have entered these constructs far later, if we're going to accept these divine appointments after we have graduated these tiers of constructs, then we're going to need to be able to speak from experience and, and not from blind obedience to convey information that we've, that we've actually lived through as opposed to conveying it in the form of, of dogma and doctrine. So this is my viewpoint. This is the conclusion that I have come. It is the only thing that makes sense to me from the historical record. It's all uh, that, that, that none of it's real. Not even history is real. Every bit of this is a backstage construct. I don't even know how far history goes before it's just pure programming. It's all back. Even that's all all, all backstage programming. It may only go back to about 522 AD. I don't know. But um, it's uh, these are things I speculate on my channel. And I show the arithmetic. I show the patterns. And I allow people to make up you know, their mind for themselves. What do you think about this right here? Here's what the historical record says. Here's the source materials. Here's it is. Here's a calculator. And there's no way this can be true. It's mathematically too precise and perfect. And yet this is exactly what we have. Yeah, I really appreciate it how much of your work rests on simple math. So it's not like opinion. It's just, you know, like these are the cycles. I'm guessing you're not as familiar with my work as I am with yours. And you and I are, are doing similar things. So my focus is on how language um, programs reality, programs us, how to break free of this reality with our language. It's similar. Whatever all the words we're speaking, speaking and thinking are programming this construct, and that's what determines how reality configures itself. I've noticed, especially in terms of the flat earther conversation, like how the construct and the people who are animated by or indoctrinated by it get really thrown by I don't know, by not taking a side, right? By like, I'm willing to question the planet. I'm not the shape of the planet. I'm not going to identify as a flat earther. I leave it in the I don't know. It feels like there's a lot of freedom there. So I'm curious to know, like, the more of us who clue in to, to like how identity is one of the traps that we're playing into, the more of us who liberate ourselves from that construct, like, are we liberating planet Earth from this enslavement construct? Are we moving to a different dimension of existence altogether? Um, yeah, I, I can definitely, I can definitely see where you see where you're going with this. Okay, um, I I am very adamant about teaching people that we are not here to save the world. Just like Will Durant, the German philosopher, he he too that was one of his principal teachings. It said, we're going to leave the world as wicked as we found it. I do not believe we're here to save an artificial construct. We are here to enjoy it, learn from it, mature, grow, do what we can. And I believe that we have been, we have been given the bounty in spirit to be able to even increase the, uh, basically, the lives of others around us. 
but we can't change the world. I don't believe that the collective, the entire collective can come together and think of a, of a golden age and a golden age is going to come. I believe we're in a construct. It has mathematical dictates. It does not change at all. What does change, and I say this often, is you. You have the, you have the ability to change your world, but you do not have the power to change the world because it is a programmed construct. It's probably been running ad infinitum, a loop, just, uh, just on a loop for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And this is why we find these little, these little synchronicities in programming fossils. And we find these things that, that are in historical record that are anomalous, they're oo-parts. They do not belong in the narrative that we're living in now, but they are evidence of a narrative that had played out at another, another time. But for some reason, the sim has not edited out all that holography. Some of those little, little programming fossils are still there and, and they confuse us. And they, they, it's, like a, it's like a wrench in the system. It makes us think. But it also has everything to do with processing power. So a construct, and, and uh, we don't have the necessary time to go fully into the archaic paradigm, but this construct is quite simple. We have a construct that has been quarantined from the rest of creation. So things can be done, experimented on, things can be thought out, invented, all kinds of things that can be done here. So there's no threat of cross-contamination with the real reality on the outside of the construct. Immortals can come in here and use their imagination to build worlds and do all kinds of things, but they cannot change the construct. It's here. It has, it has, it has definable rules that we call physics constants. Those, those don't change. Uh, Inertia stays inertia. Entropy stays in, in entropy. The law of diminishing returns is absolute. It will always be absolute. It has never changed. So we can uh we can change our world because we have this dynamic informed field that interfaces with the field that we're in, the overfield of the construct. Because the avatar that you and I wear, this body doesn't belong to us. It's just borrowed from the construct. And it's borrowed by jacking in through the central nervous system. The true you is the personality. And there isn't, there isn't another copy. There is no other Danny out there. There is no other Jason out there. The personality is what makes us unique. It's a part of our, our divine aspect. It is a part of the... the I have a book. My, my, my best-selling book is Awaken the Immortal Within. So your avatar contains the immortal within. But it is not a part of the immortal. It's like a... It's like being in the construct is being immersed into a medium that's not natural to you. So you have to have a, a skin diving suit in order to operate in that environment. Well, when you're outside of that environment, you're back in your real body and you don't need this anymore. This is low density, very heavy density, biological, and it's, and it's suited perfectly for the construct. That's why no matter where you go in the construct, there's always the perfect amount of sunlight perfect amount of air, perfect amount of uh, uh, barometric and air, air pressure. Everything is, is perfect for the human avatar. Everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a desert 
2,000 miles away from the nearest plant, there's still just enough oxygen for you to breathe. doesn't even matter. In Antarctica, there's not supposed to be any oxygen. There's nothing There's nothing up there growing that's putting oxygen out, but, you, but you're not going to asphyxiate. There's just enough oxygen. Just, if you're, just like if you're in Peru, in a Peruvian temperate forest or a jungle, there's just enough oxygen to breathe everywhere we go. It is it is who that's another thing that led me to the to the belief in a construct. Everything here is just too perfect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um are there entities here who are aware that this is a construct? You know, the bad guys, the globalists, the secret societies, like are they in on this? Oh, uh, that's a that's a question I'm not really qualified to answer. I can give you an opinion as far as uh, I'm not even convinced most of the elite are even real. It's, a, it's another part of the background programming. Uh, most of the people in media could be MB, NPCs and we would never know it. The, the modifications to avatars for different people like Trump, Biden. I mean, why do we see so many? Why, why have we documented five different Hillary Clintons? Why have there been three different Bill Clintons? There's at least two Trumps. I know there's about eight different Bidens and you can see these changes and they keep switching them out. And it's a, is this a programming glitch? Is this a series of program protocols and they're not, and, and the construct isn't really worried about uh, providing you exquisite details to be precise. Uh, it wants those little nuances in there. I don't know because uh, we find the same thing in AI art. AI art really hit the scene a year to a year and a half ago. People really started using AI art. But what's really interesting about AI art is those same little small nuances are there to let you know this isn't a real image. You'll see a beautiful woman, hair's immaculate, her dress is perfect, and then three fingers are fused together on her hand. And you, in AI art, pay attention in AI art, there's always clues in there that it's AI art. It's all. It's crazy. I've, I've got thousands of Im images of AI art and these little little clues. You'll see uh, a perfect a perfect avatar of, of a guy and a, and a girl hugging or something in the background. Pay attention. What's supposed to be a brick wall, if you look real closely, they'll put a face in it or something made out of the brick. I, AI art is, is famous for this. This is how a lot of people have been busted trying to claim images were true, but they were actually AI art. And uh, I've exposed many of these on my channel. People using chat, B, chat GPT and, uh, and open AI art to put videos together and act like they were on, on scene doing all this research and they weren't all bullshit done in a studio. So it's a, I don't know. To, to answer your question, I mean, I don't believe that anybody that we have ever seen in mainstream legacy media is the elite. They're just puppets. The true elite would never would never be a public face. They would never be known to the public. I'm not even convinced they're on the surface world. I have often postulated that there is a subterranean civilization thriving because this is what the historical record infers. And only from subterranean chambers and reservoirs could we actually get back all the things that we had formerly lost. On this 138-year cycle, many times, materials were re released on the surface world that had been hidden for centuries and thought lost in prior destructions and floods and earthquakes. It's almost as if there is a thriving human civilization in the underworld that knows about these resets and turns around and hides right before those resets, hides libraries and statues and 
and priceless art, all of the all of these underground facilities, and then when it's over, brings them all out, redistributes them, and it's crazy what I have documented. It's absolutely crazy. It's interesting the synchronicity because I'm having so many conversations these days about you know civilizations living inside the Earth. What would be the goal or intention behind these entities safeguarding th these artifacts? Like, are they? I'm just so confused as like, are they serving a humanity? Are we leaving these Easter eggs for ourselves from some sort of future dimension so that we could figure it out? Why else are all these glitches appearing? Like, I'm always just trying to figure out what what is this? And um, check this out. I'm going to I'm going to put it to you this way. What if there's an underground civilization of humans that know this history? They know that we've been technologically advanced many times in the past. They're actually altruistic. And yet, if their identity was known and those underground cities and facilities became widely known on the surface, then it would jeopardize their ability to preserve all these things that they preserve from ancient times and all, all this knowledge. Because they are aware that the surface world gets reset, but they are living in a depth of the world that is impenetrable to the technology that is hidden in the sky that continually retards human development. My channel, a lot of the material on my channel is about the Phoenix phenomenon. Not an intruder planet. It's not an alien invasion. There is a weapon disguised by hologram hidden in the sky. And every 138 years, it, 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 it basically activates. So most of the time, it's very local, the destruction that it causes. But it can literally activate volcanoes in minutes. It's been documented, too. It, it's associated to, it was called Typhon in the ancient world and Vulcan. It was associated with volcanoes by the ancients. But they knew it was in the sky. They called it the phoenix. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't a planet, but it was something that appeared in the sky. And when it did, whole civilizations were reset. Some of them were vanished. Some of them were left completely untouched and intact, and every human was just gone. Others were buried in red mud and red rain uh, to never be seen again. Completely resurfaced and civilizations built cities on top of these civilizations, not even knowing that just 40 and 50 feet below them was a prior civilization that had been reset. So this is, this is what I've documented on my channel and in my published books. So what I'm offering here is the best way to hide in the underworld is to invent is to invent an enemy for the surface to concentrate on and have them and have them at each other. You're not really killing them. You're not really doing anything. It's all in their mind. It's fear programming, but it works. It occupies their mind. And at the same time, it frees up those agents that need to come from the, from the underworld to, to do everything that they need to do and, and bring exchange men and materials. I believe a lot of exchanges of men and materials have gone in between the underworld and the surface world many times. Jacques Vallée and many researchers like Charles Fort, there's a lot of good material out there where, where researchers finally, in, they, they finally just concluded, you know what, I really don't know. Charles Fort said, Charles Fort said after a lifetime of research, you know what, it's almost as if there's an occult police force operating in our world that has its own has its own transportation and it has its own ability to make things disappear from museums and, and government archives. And then 
has the ability to fully preserve things in the middle of a destruction, has the ability to whisk people away and and then turn around. Those people are 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 asked, hey man, who saved you? Who who what vehicles came in here and put you, transported you? It's like we thought they were government. We don't know who they were. And then nobody knows who they are. This is this has gone on over and over and over. Like there is a a an intelligent uh an organized community in the underworld that has always been demonized. You know, even in medieval times, there were there were they were called elves and hobwalkies and goblins and pharaohs and, and, and uh, fairies. And uh it seems that for thousands of years they've always needed to replenish their blood. The the their their and what they, they did this by now they got they got a bad a bad rap and I understand why. But they literally didn't kill or maim anybody. They weren't eating children or nothing like that. What they were doing was switching out their offspring for perfectly surface world babies. You understand? Yes. This is a very old story. It's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, um, uh, it's in uh, some of the pseudopigraphical texts. It's switching out of babies by underworlders. They came to the surface. They would kid. They, they would take the babies, but they will always leave a baby. But it was a baby that was different. It wasn't like it wasn't like the the, the uh, villagers. It wasn't a little Caucasian baby in Europe. It was something else, but they still raised it. And uh, like Iberic stock. And um, this is a very old story. And of course, you got werewolves and vampires and all these stories get developed about uh, demons and switch fallen angels and all this stuff. But actually, it's something as it's something as mundane as needing fresh DNA in the stock to perpetuate the race. Because the inbreeding that would occur in the underworld would actually hinder any type of development after a while. So the switching out of babies had gone on in multiple cultures and over thousands of years, and it, and it would add fresh DNA to the stock in the underworld. And uh, this, this story and this theme is so prevalent that it can't be ignored. And Jacques Vallée mentioned it, Charles Fort mentioned it. There's been many other regions. I, I, matter of fact, Catherine Briggs, uh, about a hundred years ago, published a, a fascinating, gigantic book called the Encyclopedia of Fairies and Goblins in the UK, and she even talked about how how prevalent those those uh, stories were. That they had to have some type of historical backing, like the stories of the Pied Piper of Hamelin leading the children away, and the story stories of the children that vanished every time the fairy rings appeared, which we call agroglyphs today or crop circles. So fascinating. It, it really validates my own, like the visions that I've seen. I, I live in New Mexico. That's where we met initially last year. And um, I spend my summers camping and I spend a lot of time in silence, just contemplating the land masses here. And the more that I do that, the more crystal clear I am. I'm like, there's something going on inside these. They're like, these are not naturally occurring shapes in the land masses. And I feel very strongly that there are civilizations in there. What does, like, what is this current push for searching for genetic material? Like, how does genetics play into this? I know when they were trying to push the FOVID testing, it seemed clear to me they were looking for certain uh genetic markers or whatnot so how does that play in to this paradigm beyond just wanting to mix up the underground genetic stock well well i have some theories and one of them is uh one of the greatest one of the most suppressed 
ideas in the historical record is the vapor canopy period. No one talks about it. No professionals talk about it anymore. There were four different books published in the 1920s, 30s, 50s, and 70s. These four books, I, uh, I featured them on my channel. Vapor canopy was on the table. Scientists say there's no doubt there used to be a vapor canopy. During that vapor canopy, ambient radiation, increased atmospheric pressure, and about 100 times more oxygen content in the air had humans, animals, and plants growing to, to astonishing sizes. But during the vapor canopy period, also a subterranean race had freely mingled among normal surface-dwelling humans. This is the origin of the Anunnaki stories. This is the origin of blue people you see in the Hind in the in the Hindu artwork and all, all, all the, the Kali Yuga material. This is the origin. There was there was free interaction between two different races of humans. The surface, the surface-dwelling humans, which are Mongoloid, Caucasoid, and Negroid. These are the three surface-dwelling, and you can mix them up in all different ways. Everybody from Caucasian to Jewish to black to Mongolian, Chinese, everybody fits on the surface world in between Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid. These are the three principal uh, surface-dwelling races in anthropology. But there's a fourth race. The Native Americans, uh, 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 the Native American traditions go into more detail than any other culture in, the, in, in this world about the underground races. And sometimes they call them the ant people, uh, uh, whatever, and they, they call they were called the ant people not because they looked like ants, but ants are known for living in tunnels and being very, very organized and industrious. So when the Native Americans saw these people in ancient times, they saw people who were highly organized, their infrastructure was was intact, and it was known that they disappeared into the tunnels. To them, they were ants, the ant people. This was the fourth race, the fourth the fourth human race is from the underworld, and they cannot take the sunlight. The only time they come to the surface world and freely mingle and exchange technologies and all that, uh, uh, even, even relationships, intermarry and all that, is when a vapor canopy is intact. When the mesosphere has become full of volcanic ash and pumice and the red dusting that happens every 138 years from Phoenix fallout, when those vapor canopies, we've only had four vapor canopies, maybe three, in the in, in the entire historical record. And when I say historical record, I'm only going back 58 centuries. Archaics, the Archaics paradigm doesn't go beyond 5239 BC, but it's only 58 centuries that we actually have written records. Now, written records actually talk about events that go back as far as 5239 BC, 7,000 years ago, but but we don't have any records that go back that far it's just records 58 centuries ago that refer to those 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 events 13 centuries 14 centuries earlier i stick with only the facts in archaics it's uh, all my source materials have been studied by by thousands of people now because i have free downloads where people can download the the uh, bibliographies every single book i've ever researched and studied and you can see that this is I stick only with the historical written record. I can't go far all, all that back. And within the historical record, we have all the anomalies of, of the ancient past. 
we don't have to add 10,000 years. And that's why I'm so uh, such a critic of Graham Hancock. I'm always calling out Graham Hancock. I'm calling him out on Twitter. I'm calling him out on Facebook. I'm calling him out on CloudHub, on Reddit, on, on Facebook, on YouTube, because the man knows there's nothing going on as far as human infrastructure that we have any written records for in 9,600 BC. His Atlantis narrative was disproven 2,300 years ago, but he ignores all those ancient Greek scholars who corrected Plato. It was a very, a very simple mistake, very simple. And it was Plato's lack of knowledge that the Egyptian priests at Sais only counted moons. Even archaeologists today know every, it's been, it's been so widely published. The only calendar the Egyptians went by was moons. That's why all the Egyptian dates are 35,000, 70,000. 21,500. It's, it's months. And, and Diodorus Siculus, Prantor, uh, Strabo, Tacitus, they all said this, especially Eudoxus of Nidos. Eudoxus even quoted and said, Plato, Plato made a mistake. It's not 9,000 years before Solon. Atlantis was destroyed 9,000 moons before, uh, before Solon had heard the story. And, and that's the 13th century BC. And, and that fits all the record for canal works and archaeology. It fits all the cereals. It fits the domestication of horses, the manufacturing of, of raw iron ore. The story of Atlantis has about 50 different historical data points that have to be addressed as well. And, and Graham Hancock ignores them all. He's going with the mistake of 9,600 BC. So these are the things I correct on, on my channel. That's just one. I've got many, many, many of them. That I, that, I, that I correct, because once we make all the necessary corrections, the truth is laid out for everybody to see. This is why our cakes is getting so famous now. So many people are now sharing the material, looking at this whole study, our cake study groups popping up everywhere, where people are looking at the material, because the historical, traditional, and mythological, and chronological histories all make sense now, once you get rid of, the, get rid of all, all the erroneous information. And what it shows us is that we have vapor canopies appearing for about four centuries. During those vapor canopies, there is an exchange of technology between those in the underworld and those on the surface world. There's, an, there's a, there's a lot, lot of blood exchange. There's intermarriage. There's all, these people are super pale and they cannot take sunlight. But during the vapor canopy periods, they can come up to the surface world and see just fine. Actually, see better than the people in the surface world. During the vapor canopy, there is no sun. So the last time a vapor canopy collapsed, that's when all the sun calendars began. That's when the Sumerians, after thousands of years of history, the Sumerians all of a sudden invented a new god and called him Utu Thamash. At the end of Sumerian history, a new god appears representing the sun. The same thing in the Egyptian pantheon. At the very end of, of the first 13 dynasties of Egypt, ancient Egypt, all of a sudden, after they had a, a, a Aeneid for thousands of years, they had a reason to invent a new god, Horus, the sun. And so it's the same story over and over. In all the ancient American calendars, the very first age was the water sun age. It was born out of a vapor canopy. So, and every time a vapor canopy collapses, we have what's called a great flood. This is why we have so many great floods. We have the Gihon flood. We have the capture of Luna, which is called the lunar flood, uh, when the moon appeared. We have the Gihon flood after that. We have the great flood of Noah after that. After that, we had the Ogaijian deluge. I did five 
We have so much historical data on the Ogygian delusion, 1687 BC, that destroyed the entire world after the Great Flood, that it took me five videos just to summarize it. I'm not talking about give all the data on it. I'm just talking about just to summarize the wealth of material we have on this. And yet, you until until archaics came around, nobody had even heard of this flood. And yet the historical books and all the records and all the ancient historians talked about it as being even worse than the flood of Noah. So this is the value of archaics. I have pulled all this data. I have invented nothing. All I did was bring it back to the table and show everybody, look, all these ancient authors are being ignored. And when you listen to them and use a calculator, everything they say lines up absolutely perfectly. Now, I know that in terms of what where we're at now, right, and, and moving towards, I don't know if it's, it's 2045, what the date so of the next? There's two dates, two dates, okay? Throughout, throughout the entire historical, historical record, we have two phenomena that are occurring that, that that create vast changes and edits and resets. One of them is the Phoenix phenomenon every 138 years, but it is very different than the Nemesis X object. Mm -hmm. The Nemesis X object is attached to the Anunnaki history. It's every 792 years and it will be here in 2046. It's way worse. The Phoenix phenomenon was something the Anunnaki so these are two different things going on throughout world history. Both of them are perfectly documented, every single appearance, and it's harrowing. It's it's amazing that that that, that our professors, the people that we trust to teach us history, have completely ignored both of these chronologies. So I provide them in my Chronicon and in my free YouTube videos. But 2040 in the month of May is the return of Typhon. Um, this is the Ragnarok or the Fenris wolf eating the moon. Book of Revelation is the sixth seal where the moon turns red as blood and the sun goes dark. And then the whole sky rolls like a scroll, which is a pole shift. Uh, in Mother Shipton's, Mother Shipton's prophecies, this is the return of the sixth sky dragon, just like the, the return of the sixth seal. Um, the prophet Nostradamus, in his date index discovered by Professor Mario Reading, is amazing because he specifically dates the month of May. The entire world will turn red as blood. The moon, the moon will bleed. The sun will go dark, and a massive earthquake will shake the foundations of the earth. And the city of New Apples in the West will will, will be no more, which is New York City. So Nostradamus is very specific about 2040. And this is the Phoenix phenomenon. And, and I'm only paraphrasing. It's really hard to take 90-something videos and then try to wrap it all up into a... It's not... It's not. And, and the 90 videos came after the three, the three published books. I have three published books on the Phoenix phenomenon, and the videos just add to the data, more and more data. I never stop researching. Yeah, I appreciate you're doing a great job at making it accessible. And I, I recommend anyone listening, watching to check out the Archaics for Beginners video that just dropped. It's such a great intro into the work. I'm curious because you have the seven sacred seals and you're kind of timing, you know, using those as markers for what's coming. And that is a very Judeo-Christian Christian perspective. In your studies, are there cultures that are recording what's closer to you see as truth, like maybe the Tibetans or the Maya or or who knows? Well, uh, I'm going to have to correct you on one thing. 
yes, the book of Revelation is perceived to be Judeo-Christian because that's the way they wanted you to perceive it. But I totally disagree. Okay. And the reason I disagree is the elite are operating by the Greek Olympiad calendar, which is a four-year system. This is why the U.S. presidents are all, are, are all selected in the Olympiads on the year of the Olympics each time. Now, these Olympiads, like you know, on my channel, I show all the evidence that the first seal was broken in 2020, and that was on the four-year Olympiad cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, we know the whole COVID narrative. We know, well, the whole first seal, when it's broken down, only in Greek conveys something totally different than the Judeo-Christian perspective of the arrival of an Antichrist on a white horse with a bow and a crown and and it, it, that's not that's not the meaning at all. When you break it down in Greek, because the book of Revelation was written in Greek, Jesus spoke Greek. All the apostles spoke Greek. Greek was the international language of the time. All the all the New Testament books and New Testament writings were addressed to Greek cities. The 13 letters of Paul were addressed to the seven cities of Greek, Ionia, and all those Greek-speaking peoples. When you when you use only the Greek, I have two videos that show this. When you break down the first seal, the white horseman, the bow, the crown, you, you don't have an antichrist appearing. You have what the book of Revelation is written about. The book of Revelation was not a, a Judeo-Christian document. It was a text from, from the Gnosis, and it was, it was given to Christianity by a scholar named Serenthus. And what Serenthus had done is taken all the prophetic writings of the Sibyls after the fall of the oracles and hit them together in a text. The church stole that text and claimed that John on the Isle of Patmos in the year 96 AD wrote the book of Revelation. And it's not true. Serenthus delivered it to the church and it was Greek Sibylline prophecies. It was never Judaic. So this is the actual story of the book of Revelation. So these seven seals are not Judaic at all. They're Greek. They're designed to wake up people in the last days. And hey, you're in a construct. It has a terminus. There's going to be an exodus event. If you're ready, you can make the exodus event. If not, you're recycled back to Genesis. You're going to live all these life sins over again until the next exodus event. does it for this installment of my first conversation with Jason Brashears of RKX. We did continue the conversation. We moved into some spicier territory. So as you are inspired to check out the second part of my conversation with RKX's Jason Brashears, you can find that on my Locals channel as well as on my Patreon. That's dannycats.locals.com as well as Patreon dot com slash Danny Katz. Thank you so much for tuning in to my show as you are inspired to learn more about me, my quantum languaging work, my pop propaganda homeschool course, which is being digitized as we speak. If you're curious to learn more about coaching with me, consulting with me, learning more about my quantum languaging courses and webinars, please find me at dannycats.com, where you will also find links to my Instagram account. I'm also encouraging you to sign up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. It is the best way for us to stay in touch in light of so much censorship and big tech thought policing. All right, that does it. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for remembering that every word matters. 
that you are omniscopic amazingness. Have a rockin' day. And for <laughs> clicking that subscribe button, for liking, for sharing, for commenting, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As you are receiving any value from my podcast, as you dig it, as you listen regularly, consider supporting me on Patreon and or Locals, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, as well as oodles of bonus content. Your support really goes a long way in supporting me as a journalist and an independent content creator navigate her way through a really crunchy time in terms of free speech. And as you are wanting to learn more about my work in the world, my books, my products, my quantum languaging, coaching, and consulting, you can find me at dannycats.com as well as quantumlanguaging.com. And if you're not down with a membership patronage platform and want to send me one-time donation, you can use the Bitcoin link if it actually appears on your podcast listening platform. You could also send me a one-time donation by way of PayPal at dannycats at pm.me or by way of Venmo where my username is Sadie Bloom. Again, your support means the world and makes a massive, massive difference when it comes to continuing to share this work with the world. Thank you for sharing your sacred attention with me. Thank you for remembering that you are omniscopic amazingness and for having a rockin' day. See you next time, superstars.